This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for July 15th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking to Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, it's pretty clear that the COVID-19 outbreak is going in the wrong direction in the United States. We have a record number of cases in many states and in the country overall. The public health response hasn't been adequate to control this disease. In fact, it's not clear that there's the political will to actually control it. It looks increasingly as if we're going to have to turn to technological tools to make a difference. And this week, we published work on one of those possible tools, an early vaccine candidate. What did we learn? Steve, the study that we published was on a vaccine that was based on messenger RNA or mRNA. This is an interesting technology. It works by encoding an antigen in mRNA. In this case, the antigen was a viral spike glycoprotein, which is a protein on the outer surface of the virion, the viral particle. And the mRNA is introduced into cells and transcribed and translated in order to amplify the production of the antigen, of the spike protein in this case. Now, there's a twist to this one, which is the spike protein has two different states, a pre-fusion state and a post-fusion state. And what's located on the viral surface is the prefusion state. So the investigators made modifications in the protein to lock it into that state so that it wouldn't collapse into the postfusion state. And so it would look most like what's on the virus, which is what the immune system can see. And so the hope is that that might grant protective immunity. So this was an early phase trial, a phase one trial, right? That's right. And phase one trials are primarily designed to test the safety of an intervention. And this one, like other phase one trials, used escalating doses of vaccine. And in this case, they administered them on day zero and then four weeks later on day 28. And it was primarily designed to look at what adverse events would develop. For vaccines, one of the primary adverse events is something that we call reactogenicity. That's the side effects that develop immediately or shortly after vaccination that are due to the inflammatory response that's induced by the vaccine. There are a couple categories of these. Generally, there are local reactions at the injection site, but there are also systemic reactions, which are usually febrile syndromes accompanied by myalgias, et cetera. So phase one studies are really designed to allow investigators to choose the appropriate dose of an agent to be used in further studies, more advanced studies. So this was not designed to look at efficacy, but there are clues from such trials. And in this case, the investigators looked at various measures of the immune response to determine the effectiveness. So what are the takeaways? I think there are three major takeaways. First, that there were no serious adverse events among the 45 patients who received the vaccine, though there was one patient who withdrew after the first dose due to development of urticaria that may have been related to the vaccine. There were more minor reactions, local injection site reactions, and some people developed systemic symptoms after the virus. These generally occurred more often after the second vaccination, which is common, and with the higher dosage groups. Uh, the symptoms weren't that severe and they were fairly typical of what's seen from other vaccines. So. It's reasonably well tolerated. It looks like other vaccines, at least in the small group of individuals. The second takeaway was that all of the doses elicited antibodies. And as the vaccine dose increased, 
people developed higher antibody levels. The investigators measured antibodies in multiple different ways, including two different ways of measuring virus neutralization, measuring its ability to block infection of tissue culture cells. And everyone developed these neutralizing antibodies. And in general, those neutralizing antibody titers, and in fact, all antibody titers, were higher at higher vaccine doses and also were able to neutralize virus better than convalescent serum, than antibodies taken from patients who actually had natural infection, which suggests that it's conceivable that vaccines might work better as protection than natural infection. And finally, the investigators looked a bit at cell-mediated immunity. Vaccines can induce two different kinds of immunity, both humoral immunity, which are antibodies, and cell-mediated immunity. And they did see some T-cell responsiveness and that type of T-cell responsiveness was a Th1 response, which is the kind of response that we think might be helpful in preventing infection, and not a Th2 response, which is thought to perhaps lead to increased viral replication. So it was the kind of response that we need. But of course, the huge caveat to all of these efficacy findings is we don't know what protective responses look like. So while these are encouraging responses, we don't know if they correlate with protection against disease. It's clear though that the vaccine did what it was designed to do. It induced the kinds of responses that the investigators had hoped. So Eric, I agree these data from the phase one study are quite interesting. As you know, I'm involved with the NIH, with NIAID and the path to develop the phase three clinical trials. And the NIH is working with the major companies developing the vaccines because this is the way to bring it forward rapidly in public-private partnerships. And as such, I was uninvolved in any of the process assessing this paper and saw it for the first time last night. And those data, as I said, are quite interesting and encouraging. But the point you make is a very important one, which is we don't know what a protective immune response is, and there is no known correlate of protection. However, modeling in light of what natural immunity looks like, leveraging in vitro data, are ways for us to infer that the vaccine-elicited immune responses may be protective. Whether it's more protective than natural infection is certainly a hope, but the real question is, are we modeling around the correct immune responses that are associated with protection? And there's no way to know that because the correlates of protection haven't been defined. But these data are definitely encouraging, you know, given that the elicitation of the neutralizing antibodies are a parameter that many think are associated with protection. It's a tough disease to understand the correlates of immunity because we really don't have a very good idea of whether natural infection is protective or even partially protective or fully protective. There are reports of people developing symptoms of COVID-19 after an initial infection. And some of those may represent reinfections. Many of those may represent patients who are unable to clear the initial infection entirely. But without evidence from natural infection, it's hard to know what correlative immunity will look like. So I think it's likely that we're not going to learn a lot more until we have some of the efficacy results from these vaccines. I think you're absolutely correct. And I think 
in many vaccines, we don't actually know the correlate of protection. We do know clinical protection, and then we infer which immunologic parameters are best associated with that. Even in natural infection, as we've been seeing reports coming out, there may be waning neutralizing antibody titers. What are the implications of that for protection in the long term? And we see that with other kinds of pathogens, and we know that the immune system can be primed. And even with loss of neutralizing antibody, there can be an amnestic response and a boosting response. So I think the natural immunity that is engendered by wild-type infection will take some time for us to really understand. And I should add, Lindsay, that, of course, it's entirely possible that vaccination will elicit a kind of response that's not like a natural infection, and that might be better. So we don't need the information from natural infection. It would help if it gave us some guideposts in the correlates of immunity, but it's not essential that natural infection be protective in order for vaccines to work. Correct. Although the more we can mimic the natural model, I think the greater the chance of the strategy working. But this disease, COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, is quite different than other pathogens. And so there are aspects of it that I think mimic the typical host pathogen interaction with immune elicitation. And there are aspects of it that are surprising us, such as the endothelial damage, the nature of the delayed inflammation, the thrombotic diathesis. So there are elements of this organism that are somewhat different. Whether or not any of that plays a role in the type of protection needed to prevent infection or to prevent the consequences of infection are unknown and hopefully won't be relevant. But there are differences, and in time, hopefully, we'll better understand the relevance of these differences, and can a vaccine elicit an immune response typical of immune responses that we've developed with other vaccines, and does that become adequate for protection? And the hope is that that will be the case. There's a strong rationale for that being the case, but time will tell. Just to expand on that a little bit, I think one of the unusual characteristics that people have looked at that might be true is that antibodies, at least, don't last that long for this infection. I think it hasn't been terribly well documented yet, but there is a feeling that there aren't persistent antibody responses. But I want to go back to what a vaccine would do as opposed to natural infection. It's not unlikely that a vaccine could produce a persistent antibody response where natural infection doesn't. We'll have to see. But I'm not convinced that a persistent antibody response is required for long-term protection or for amelioration of disease, because one can lose the antibody, yet still have the B cells and the machinery to rapidly respond when faced with the pathogen again. And so one could imagine that one loses the antibody response, subsequently gets infected wild type, but yet does not have significant clinical illness many questions we don't know and are intriguing. And it'll just, again, take time to sort this out. So given all of that, how does this trial, this candidate fit into vaccine development efforts in general? There are an absolutely enormous number of vaccine candidates out there in varying stages of development. The last tally I saw suggested that there are more than 150. This is one of the most advanced, but there are other advanced candidates out there for example, last month, a group from China published the results of a similar early phase study, 
This time, the gene for the spike glycoprotein was expressed in a modified adenoviral vector. That study was larger. It had about 108 participants. They did a similar trial with three different dosages and found reactogenicity that was worst at the highest doses. So a similar sort of result. Their vaccine was different in that it induced high levels of T-cell reactivity, of cell-mediated immunity, but much more modest levels of antibody. But again, I have to go back to, we don't know which of these is more important or if both could provide protection. And then last week, another group posted a preprint, which is not yet published, of another phase one study. This vaccine from another manufacturer is also an mRNA vaccine again for the spike glycoprotein, but the glycoprotein, which is ordinarily arranged as a trimer, as three molecules complexed together, that trimer is conserved in the vaccine candidate from this other group. This one was given to 36 patients and nine placebo controls. And again, reactogenicity occurred, which worsened with the increasing dose. In fact, they dropped the second administration of the highest dose because they were concerned about how ill it was making people. And again, they found very high titers of antibodies and neutralizing activity. They haven't yet reported on their cellular immune responses. So there's a lot out there already, and there's going to be a lot more. I think that as we watch transmission of COVID explode domestically and around the globe and the mortality consequence be so significant, The response by the scientific and government communities has been remarkable. You know, the U.S. government, for example, through BARDA and the NIH, have put substantial investment into developing countermeasures, treatments, as well as vaccines. And I think the latest WHO comments are over 100 vaccine candidates, dozens have gone into people. And through this collective public response, some could say it's too slow. Others can say in five months, we've never done it this quickly before. A variety of mechanisms have been developed to advance these candidates through the NIH, through the CoVPN networks, through the U.S. government that I'm part of that are designed to rapidly facilitate the development of candidate countermeasures, including vaccines. And so it's unprecedented the speed that COVID has spread around the world. It's also unprecedented the response. However, the response we all wish could be faster and will push to be faster. So given that these candidates are beginning to accumulate and are potentially ready to go into further testing, how's that decision going to be made? How's it going to be decided which ones go forward? So that's a really good question. And I'm going to leave some of the mechanics to Lindsay because he is involved in some of the decision-making that's going on in collaboration with the NIAID. But I will point out that the trials are very expensive and they'll require thousands of patients. So we can't do an unlimited number of these late phase three trials. We'll be limited by not only cost, and the government and other funders are certainly putting a lot of money into this, so that may not be the single limitation, but the number of patients that we can recruit and for efficacy studies, we would like to recruit those people in areas where there is ongoing transmission of virus so that we can actually measure outcomes. So there is going to be a practical limit and it's going to require a lot of hopefully coordinated thought to figure out how we proceed. I think that it is a challenge, Steve, as you sort of note, and as Eric and I discussed earlier, we don't have a correlate of protection. 
So the immunogenicity from the study that we're publishing is a marker on the road of what needs to be seen, but isn't the answer. But I think safety, speed, and scalability are key parameters. And scalability, not only for 300 million US citizens, but I would argue 7 billion. You know, this is a problem for the globe and we have to be able to go to scale to respond to it. But I think it's how quickly can we respond safely and how many candidates can we move forward thoughtfully because they have a reasonable chance of working in the appropriate safety profile. Steve, this particular vaccine, which is made by a company, Moderna, the trial was done by the NIAID, is going to undergo phase three trials pretty soon. They've publicly announced that they'll be starting in a couple of weeks. And Eric, you know, in interacting with my colleagues at the COVID Vaccine Prevention Network and NIAID and Dr. Fauci, there is an incredible energy to move as many candidates forward as quickly as possible, given the urgency of this problem, the degree of transmission that we're watching going on around the country. And many of us, myself included, believe that a vaccine will likely be a critical element to thwart transmission of the virus and that needs to be developed as quickly as possible. And these phase three trials are the only way, in my view, to know if it works or not. And so we have to be positioned as a nation to do them quickly, as a globe, really, to do them quickly. There's another step beyond doing the trial, of course, which is producing the vaccine. And Lindsay, you alluded to the fact, the practicality of that. I think that one of the determinants of what we move forward with is what can be produced at scale, but also how quickly we can do that and when we should start doing that. The U.S. government and other governments have been investing in some of these early phase candidates to scale up production already, even before phase three trials have started. And so there are people placing bets right now on what at least has a chance to work. It's a lot of money. It's not unreasonable given the cost of the COVID-19 pandemic, but there are only so many bets one can place. Well, Eric, as Dr. Fauci has said, and I think I heard him testify before the Senate on this, and I completely agree, there is no shortcuts on safety in any of these trials. However, Developing a vaccine from a five to 10 year process to a five to 10 month process means that we can accelerate certain elements of it and where we can take risk is financial. And manufacturing vaccines to scale, hundreds of millions of doses can be done after an efficacy signal and take several more months, or it can be done while one is generating the efficacy signal. So if there's an efficacy signal, one is ready to deploy the vaccine shortly thereafter. If there is no efficacy, then that is wasted money. If there is efficacy, then months are saved. And that's a societal balance that we as a community have to decide if that's worth it. My own view is I think a couple of billion dollars to manufacture several products that have high scientific reason to work that saves months is probably worth it given the trillion dollar catastrophe that our economy is facing. But that is a worthwhile, debatable position. But we as a community have to decide what is the value of time versus cost. So what are the big questions that are facing us? So there are two big questions. Does the vaccine work and is it safe? I think we know some of the answer to part one to the does it work question. 
we can make vaccines and probably multiple vaccines that elicit the kinds of responses that we generally want vaccines to elicit. And I suspect that this early success here will be followed up by many other successes using different sorts of strategies to elicit antibody responses or cell-mediated immune responses. So that's a big hurdle to overcome. But as we've said, we don't know if these responses correlate with protection yet. So that efficacy signal, we are only going to learn from these large phase three trials that are starting now. So that remains a big question. Just as importantly as whether or not these vaccines are going to be safe. And there's no real way of telling without administering them to many thousands of people. So there's not a shortcut to safety. We just have to do it and observe carefully and see what happens. The problem with vaccines, as opposed to many of the other interventions we use in medicine, is that they're given to healthy people. And even a low rate of bad outcomes can be unacceptable, even for such a severe disease. And we can't see low rates without trying it in a lot of people. And then the other big question that we are always faced with, when are we going to have a useful vaccine? What's the timeline looking like now? I'll weigh in first, not tomorrow. Lindsay, you want to add anything? Eric, I think that it is, as you've already alluded to, there's no way to predict what works. So we have to do the rigorous science to determine what works. So I think that the rate-limiting step, in my view, is conducting the phase three trials to determine efficacy, because other elements, such as manufacturing to scale, have already been considered, and that timeline has been shortened. So it's the speed of the efficacy trials in the shadow of the speed of the outbreak. And unfortunately, the speed of the outbreak is uh, scary, to put it simply. And just to get back to the previous point, I'd say efficacy and safety. And there's no shortcut for safety. You just have to administer a lot as well. No, you're absolutely correct. When I say efficacy, I absolutely mean efficacy and safety. They go together. And Eric, your point that vaccines are given to healthy people without disease creates a very high safety bar appropriately. And that will be part of the critical path trials. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.